If you like to gamble, I tell you I'm your man. You win some, lose some, it's all the same to me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Motorcast, the only official Motorhead podcast. I am your host, Howard H. Smith. You may know me as lead singer with UK thrash metal band Acid Rain, or you might know me from my own podcast, Talking Bollocks, where I interview the great and the good of heavy metal. But in this particular instance, I am merely your host, your guide through the world of all things Motorhead. And what a world it is. And here at the Motorcast, we thought it only apt that seeing as how there is about to be a brand new best of coming out on October the 29th. It's the first career spanning very best of Motorhead. It's called Everything Louder Forever. It's the definitive collection of their loudest anthems, which is out on the 29th of October on deluxe fold out quadruple LP gatefold double lp two cd as well as streaming um and gonna be a, a sony 3d spatial audio so check that out okay and in honor of this happening we thought it was only apt to get the legendary the mysterious original very first motorhead drummer lucas Fox. Now, this interview has been in the can for a while. We've been waiting for something particularly um, special to happen, and the release of this best of seemed like the appropriate time. A few of you over the months since this podcast has been coming out have have dropped me messages and said, oh, you know, will Lucas Fox be coming on any time? Can anyone track down Lucas Fox? Well, guess what? If anyone can, that's right. Us at the Motorcast, the team behind the team, managed to track him down. Well, one of the previous interviewers, you know, put us in touch. But hey, look, we got him for you, okay? And he's here right now. This is my chat with Lucas Fox. I'm going to start where I always start. How did your involvement with Lemmy and Motorhead all begin? Ah, you want the short story or the the slightly shorter story? (laughs) Any story will do, to be honest. Well, it's weird because I, I didn't really think about any of this until relatively recently, within the last two or three years. And I really, you know, people started going, well, wait a minute, there's another guy, the last man standing, you know, Eddie's gone sad, Phil's gone really sad, of course, Lem's gone really sad. And then suddenly everyone started waking up and sort of went, wait, wait a minute, there's that guy as well. And, um, and then they all started sort of saying, well, how did you get into Motorhead at the age of 22 as an unknown drummer, right? Yeah. So I said, so, but well, I started drumming when I was nine, and started washing cars when I was nine to buy drum kits. And um, at the age of thirteen, I was playing in a blues band while I was still at school. And then at seventeen, six months of art school, and that was it. All I really did for years and years and years was drum. And um, <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Um, I think that, that one of the short answers is I lied. I lied to get into the speakeasy. I lied about my age at the age of 17 and got a membership card. So it was down the speakeasy that I started meeting all these rough and ready characters, ladies and gentlemen. And um, that's really how it, how it all started. About, about the age of 20, I was in a, um, a pub rock band called WH Pierce Band. We were actually quite good. And, um, and they got taken under the wing of a certain band called Pink Floyd. So we were using Pink Floyd's um, 
Martin base rig, which was the prototype for all the Martins to come. They tested it out and made it for the Floyd, basically. And a little other than Heath's desk, which is also the prototype of things to come. And um, and we spent a week in, in Nick Mason's home studio, which is a you know home studio. When you say home studio these days, you imagine something not too grand. This was a, a fully-fledged home yeah. studio, just like a studio in a studio. Yeah. Um, but but it's, it's, it's Gaff in, in Islington. So he spent a week in there um, with Roger Waters and Nick Mason producing. Wow. Now, that, that's, that is, that's bizarre, because obviously a lot of people won't associate, you know, Pink Floyd with punk. Well, no. And, and for most people, don't really associate, you know, Motorhead with punk either, which is quite strange, because um, the punks did. The punks associated with Motorhead straight away. They got it. Yeah. Um, but of course, before Motorhead, and this, this is something which is, I've done something like 42, 43 interviews from parole over the last, I don't know, six weeks or something. And various questions came up, which were really interesting. And one of them was, well, if you had stayed in Motorhead, how, do, how would you see that, you know, Motorhead Mark 1 fitting, fitting into the, the music scene at the time? And I just didn't think for even a second. I thought, well, it would be fucking great. The damned are all mates. You know, I mean, Rats Gabies and, and, well, particularly Brian James is a close mate of mine. Tony James of Generation X is a close mate of mine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They all loved Motorhead. They got it. It was the record company and, to a great extent, the press, which didn't really get Motorhead. But the, I mean, can, can we do a short little bit of history? Yeah, go for it, mate. 1973. The petrol crisis, right? Four-day week. Um, electricity strikes for four hours a day of that four-day week. Um, massive un- unemployment, suddenly for the first time since the war. Massive unemployment because of the oil crash. The price of vinyl doubled. And suddenly all the gate folds, sleeves started sliding out the back door. And surprise, surprise, disco came in where all the pubs could now have one DJ instead of a band. Even the strippers suffered suffer from that. And, and um, so, so there you have, um, right across the UK, enormous amounts of kids who are unemployed. And the kids who are employed, um, they're, they're dropping, they're, their wages are dropping. They're on a four-day week and stuff. And so, so suddenly you've got this disconnect between what the kids were used to seeing, which was Genesis, Yes, uh, Pink Floyd, uh, you know, John Eisen's Coliseum, all these bands who played like, I don't know, 15 minute songs with 25 minute guitar solos followed by a 10 minute drum solo. You know, so it was, and they used to, they were, they were all living in manors outside, manors and chateaus outside London, driving Rolls Royces and Bentleys. And they'd take six months or eight months, even traffic. I, I love some of these bands, it's not, not a problem. But, but they were completely disconnected from what these kids, this, this up-and-coming lot, wanted and, and could see. And even the old hippies were getting pissed off because they'd kind of had enough, you know, of, of just like endless, endless nights of guitar solos and drum solos and, and jams and all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so as a result, when Motorhead came along, it was very, very different. There wasn't really a Flaming Groovies in 1975 
they, they existed, but they were they definitely weren't famous. Um, there was no Stooges in in Europe. There was no MC5 in Europe. And that was what basically one of the things, one of the many things that that linked me and Lemmy so closely together was our love of those sorts of bands, our love of short, sharp shock songs, a la 1960s, uh, them or pretty things or the birds with Ronnie Wood or um, CC Ryder, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, all those sorts of songs. Yeah, which which were real good rock and roll, but again, Link Ray, all that edgy part of rock and roll. It wasn't the sweet, uh, uh-huh, you know, Elvis stuff. It was more, you know, the dangerous Elvis stuff, you yeah. know, where you look look like an angel, but in fact you're a devil in disguise. All that stuff. That was that was what we were going for. Um, mixed with a heavy dose of uh, the original idea was to have two guitarists. Mm. Yeah. But one of them, one of them finally decided not to. And so when Lemmy got kicked out of Hawkwind, well, I mean, how I met Lemmy, I met Lemmy in Speak. So that was just to link, link that up. Um, so so that, that's pretty much how I got into Motorhead. Cause I, but Graft, I yes. fucking grafted for years and years and years until at the, a very young 22-year-old met Lemmy, who was like 27 or 28, who'd just flown out of the back end of... Um, you know, being Hendrix's roadie and Hendrix's acid diva. Right. So, it, it, so it, sorry, go on. Go ahead. Um, well, I was, I was, I was going to say at, at the time. I mean, when when did you actually um, kind of meet Lemmy? Was it, uh, you know, was it was it in the club? Was it, you know, through, you know, be, being, you know, cheating your age and getting in there, or, were you, or was there a sort of third party that introduced the both of you? Yeah, it's motorcycle Irene. Right. That I've been hanging around with, with, with for ages. Motorcycle Irene and I, you know, we, we we really did a lot of partying and a lot of, had a lot of fun, and um, and we drove around. In, I, I had a little white fridge. We used to call the fridge. It was a white Renault van, um, which of course, you know, I, I was so I was so pissed off with getting stopped every night, driving flash cars with long hair. That, that finally I just thought, fuck it, it's, it's too much grief to get my drum kit in all these cars. I'm going to get a little van, right? And yeah. sure enough, I, I almost never got stopped after that, apart from the roadblocks with the IRA situation. So um, so I had this little white van that, you know, looked like something that the baker would have, you know, which yeah. was a great little car. But we called it the fridge because it, it had really rudimentary heating and no cladding on the inside. And so it's uh, and really thin metal. <laughs> a bit of a death trap and it's a great great little car so um so so i had a car that was useful to various people including most motorcycle i read and a little bit further down the line lemmy because he didn't drive right yeah and uh, and uh and we met up in 74 um so i'm trying to find the months because i'm writing the book at the moment ah um, right so, okay well just like you, so many people ask that question. You sort of start hearing about, well, where, where did you go to school? I went well, to French lycée. They go, what? And I go, yeah, that's why I'm in Paris. I'm completely bilingual and bicultural. The buy ins there for the moment, but never say never. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, so, 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 yeah, I mean, I was thrown in there at the age of four to the age of 17. And it was uh, much different. It wasn't like a Madonna school at the time at all. 
that it must was, have um, sorry was, that must that must have fascinated Lemmy to have met to to have met somebody who you know had had, had this incredibly um, travelled upbringing at, at, at such a young age. Mm. Well, yeah, but we kind of fitted with him because he hated the the typical uh, English British um, fly the flag, um, you know, jingoistic stuff. Yeah. Which, which was part of why we both had the fascination for, for the other side, you know, the dark side. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the Hugo Boss designed SS uniforms, um, the elite regiments in, in the German army and stuff. Yeah. But neither of us, neither of us were tall Nazi. I mean, Jesus, you know, we loved people. Yes, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, it was, it was people, you know, um, all colours, all races. You know, and there weren't only one race, the human race. But all all types, all shapes and sizes were good for us, and and frankly, it was old school entertainment. He was an old school entertainer, and and that fitted me just fine, because in the end, it's when you get on stage, you get on stage to get the audience off. They've they've been working a factory or in a fucking supermarket or or somewhere, you know, and, and they're not very happy about their, their their life and stuff. You go to a gig to get off and and go into another space. Yeah. All these, all these bands were getting on stage to, to, to do a performing dog act to show how many paradiddles they could do or how many blah, 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 guitar solos they could do was not what we were about. We were very about much getting, so. the fucking, getting the audience off. Yeah. Which is very old school. It's like 19th century entertainment, basically. You know, and, and we loved Ted Ray and The Goon Show and, and uh, Monty Python and all that stuff. You know, so, so, so it's, it's really entertainment. The core, the core thing is the whole thing. You talk about rock and roll. You know what rock and roll means, the two words, don't you? Um, enlighten me. Well, to rock is, is like a rocking horse. It's a movement fore and aft. Yeah. Ro- roll is the movement of a boat um, sort of go- going side to side. It basically means to fuck. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, and it comes from the bordellos. Um, in North America, in North America, when when the slaves started being freed, they started setting up bordellos um, right. for, for the Afro-American workers. And in in those bordellos, you had people like Bessie Smith and and all those wonderful girl singers who sang the most bawdry, pornographic songs you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've, dis- I've heard some from that. that. Yeah, no, I've heard some from back in those days. Um, and, and you and you guys and you, basically, well, you guys just basically um, kind of stripped everything down. I mean, as you said, there there there, there was it was a slightly grandiose time in music, uh, in you know, in rock. Um, slightly, slightly, it was fucking pomp rock. <laughs> <laughs> it was really pompous. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, uh, I, I I loved a lot of it. I, I must admit, you know. Parts of Emma's Lake Apartment, you know, yeah, great, you know, John Heisen, a couple of things are there, you know, but give me the yard birds. But did you guys, did you guys set out to, to kind of, uh, you know, be different, to subvert that, or was it just you all plugged in and the noise you made was the noise you made? No, 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 absolutely not. The first was right. Um, from the minute that we met at the speakeasy, Lemmy and I started talking about our loves, our loves. We talked about music, we talked about all the bands I've mentioned here above. We talked about girls, we talked about our respect for women, we 
talked about riding horses, which we both loved. We talked about the Second World War. And the, the bands that I talked about, MC5, you know, we tried all that. The very first couple of nights we started hanging out and staying up all night, we started playing all these tracks. And, 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 and all, all, all the Beatles Star Club uh, bootleg tapes, early Beatles, you know. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, so it was only natural. And, and Lemmy was very frustrated in Hawkwind. He loved being in Hawkwind because, A, he was getting well paid. B, he was suddenly, after Silver Machine um, became a hit and did the top of the pops, he became the centre of the attention of, of Hawkwind. Therefore, that was great for him. It never crossed his mind to have his own band. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, it really didn't. And and so, so when he did get kicked out, he was absolutely. He was a car crash. He was absolutely gobsmacked. He, he was so offended. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bugger. Um, but but of course, you know, it, it, it's easy with twenty twenty hindsight as usual. Um, you look back on it, you go, well, I can remember that loads of times when Lem and I were hanging out while he was in Hawkwind. And Where were we? Uh, so what would happen was Lemmy and I would be up for two or three nights as he was regularly, um, way before me. And, um, and it, it, I'd drop him off somewhere down Portobello Road and he'd crash. He'd fall asleep somewhere at some squat somewhere. And of course, then Doug Smith's office would call me up and say, were you with Lemmy? And I said, yeah, yeah, I just left him. Where is he? I said, fuck no. You know, I left him wandering down Portobello Road. Um, well, we can't find him. We've got to go on tour now. The, the bus is ready. We're waiting for him. And this happened over and over and over again. So when he got kicked out of Hawkwind, it wasn't completely a surprise. Um, it was also the thing of, well, he was, he was taking speed and they were taking acid and smoking dope all the time. So they were both in different planets and time zones. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. So Lemmy, Lemmy, Lemmy was living in his world, and they were living in their world, and they came together on stage, and it worked. But of course, there were jealousies within Hawkwind, who were extremely jealous of the fact that suddenly Lemmy had become the centre of attention. Everyone wanted to interview Lemmy. The girls were going for Lemmy, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, Lemmy loved that. But again, as I say, so so when when he finally got kicked out, it was kind of the fight. The final straw when when uh, when they crossed the Canadian border and he swore blind he had nothing on him. He got busted for speed, and the next morning the um, the analysis came back when he was in jail, and it turned out to be speed, not cocaine. And speed and vitamin sulfate at the time was called a uh, I think it was called a pure drug or or, or or a real drug or something. It wasn't it wasn't illegal at the time. Yeah, I think it was called pure food or something. Something crazy. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so, so as a result, he got he he, he came out of jail and uh, went and did the sound check as usual and uh, played the gig as usual and went to the dressing room and they threw him out. And the next morning, he was on the plane back home and I picked him up from Heathrow. So that's I, how it happened. And and um, I mean, at that stage, was it just was it was it shock? Was it anger? You know, how do you remember him sort of reacting to that? Oh, shock, anger. Um, desperation, um, and wanting because <laughs> yeah, because I mean, re it really, he's he's you know, he's gone from hero to zero in the space of a gig, hasn't he? Very, very well put. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly it. And 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 of course, Hawkwind were 
had an enormous amount of space rock fans, but they weren't the most respected of bands either because they were so alternative, which is one of the things we all loved about them. Pink Fairy, same thing. Um, it, they, they weren't mainstream popular bands. Therefore, this lot were kind of weird space hippies. And we're in 75, and the hippies had kind of finished in 69, 70, although they were still everywhere. Um, they were be- gradually becoming more and more marginalized as, of course, the 70s kicked in. And, well, 73, as I said, and, of course, disco came along. So, so suddenly, you know, swathes of, of fans started going into something else. And Bowie, of course, you know, the whole glam rock thing kicked off in, in 72, 73. Um, from Lindsay Kemp, who I met at the time with, with Irene, um, who basically taught how, taught uh, Bowie and Bolan and Tim Curry how to wiggle and stuff. So how did, um, stuff. So, so how did you go from, from, you know, was it a case of sort of you know pulling Lemmy out of the doldrums and then sort of saying right what we you know do you fancy doing something or you know how long did it take to go from him being in that ultimately low position for you guys to suddenly go do you know what we could we could you know we could start a band. Well, how it, how it happened was for the first two weeks he was absolutely livid and was convinced that Hawking was going to take him take him back. That he, he was saying things like, well, who else is going to sing Silver Machine? None of them can. And that's how he ended up. Yeah, he ended up seeing, seeing Silver Machine by accident. You know that one? Yes. They, they, were, yeah. they, they, were, they recorded um, Silver Machine with the whole set at the Cre- Greasy Truckers Ball at, round, at the Roundhouse. And when they went to Morgan Studios afterwards and listened to the tapes, they could hear that, that Bob Calvert's voice just didn't cut it on Silver Machine. And um, and so, one by one, all of the band tried to it, until they finally tried to sing it, until they finally came around to Lemmy and said, oh, well, go on, Lemmy, give it a go. Then. And, you know, begrudgingly, they didn't want him to do it. And, of course, he sang it, and it went, and it worked. So, so that's how that happened. Um, and, get it, and with you guys... Like you said, so he was still was he was still you know after a couple of weeks still slightly fixated on on you know what they're going to do without me. Obsessed by, not fixated, obsessed right. by. And I was really pissed off with it. I knew Lemmy as a gregarious, fun guy, a complete loner, which is also why we fitted in well together, because I wasn't one of these guys who was constantly needing to compete with him. You know, uh, I could hang out with a silverback you know, silverback male, alpha male gorilla without any problem because I didn't didn't have the need to compete with people. I still don't. I don't believe in, in competition, really, yeah. as such. Everybody else is there going, oh, yeah, but football, five goals and all that macho stuff. That's not me. You know, that's not my style. Um, in music, you know, the, the number of times I've, I've come off stage and somebody's like, well, okay, Lucas, uh, who's the greatest drummer in the world? And I go, I can't think like that. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, who's, who's the greatest guitarist in the world? I go, I can't think like that. How can you, in the arts, how can you possibly fucking compare, you know, who's better, Hendrix or Beethoven? Yeah. It doesn't work. Well, it, well, it, it doesn't work like that because it's, it's not, it's it not linear, like is it? It's art. It's, it's, it's art. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, 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 therefore, each, each genius or artist 
exist in their own bubble. Thank fuck. And they, <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they all feed off each other. They all copy each other. They all imitate each other and stuff. But if you want actual creation, you've got to have originality. And if you've got originality, then just like they say in French at the end of a meal, would you like cheese or dessert? I'll go both. Yeah. Why do I have to choose? I'll have Beatles and Stones and Kinks and Foremost and, you know, because I love some of it. So was that the was that the um, was that the kind of like the the mission starting out like you know look if we if we like it we we do it it's all inclusive. Uh, the the mission happened a lot later. That was me with me and, and and Andrew Eldridge and Sisterhood and Sisters of Mercy. But <laughs> no, no, very good, very good. Um, but, but, but yes, um, so, so, so what happened was I I started getting really pissed off with them. I said, listen, that's enough, that's enough. You're gonna have to pull pull through this. You know, they're, they're not going to take you back. It's clear. They're not going to take you back. They were too jealous. You lived in another world. It's not going to happen. I'm a drummer. I've been drumming for years. It's since the age of nine. I've been in like five or six professional bands. Um, I'm good. You know, let's just start playing. Let's do something. And at the same time as I was saying that, every Friday, the only time he went out, really, was every Friday to get his wages in cash from Doug Smith's office. So every Friday, Doug Smith was saying basically the same thing as I was. Listen, then, you've got an enormous following of fans for Silver Machine and all the stuff you wear in, 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 in Portquind. Um, you know, they're not going to have your back. Um, you've got a possibility here of starting your own band. And he didn't want to. It's just too much grief. Can you imagine all the guys in Hawkwind having to manage that band? Can you imagine after that experience thinking you're going to have your own band? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'd go yeah. no, too much grief. Well, also being and also it, being a loner as he as he was, it's it's you know start a band and it's like oh right okay well that's throwing your lot in with people that I don't know and it's going to need organising and all the rest of it and yeah I can right. I can imagine him really resistant to that. So he's very resistant to that until suddenly you know the penny drops and then of course he had the he had the great idea that he'd start a band. <laughs> <laughs> Being lonely, <laughs> and, uh, and, good, and good for him. I won't, I won't take anything away from them. You know, fucking great. And uh, and and then then uh, then then it started happening. And uh, Lem and I really screwed into our what you know the stuff we've been listening to for uh, almost a year then, um, since I don't know May or June the year before or something. And um, and and. It, it just became clear. It, it had to be short, sharp, shock. It had to be dirty. Um, you know, the idea was to, 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 to slam home numbers. Uh, it had to be incredibly loud. Um, and, of course, the image. We'd been mentally working on the image together with all our, at the end of the night, discussions about the German army and, you know, what we thought were cool uniforms. And, you know, the, and of course, that was all anti the British establishment, which was so staid. And so, 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 so we, we both had an international attitude. We both loved Europe. We both loved the States. You know, we both loved um, kids. From, you know, there was no flag stuck up our asses, you know? Yeah. There was, yeah. No, there so was, take, there was no, we, are, Eng we yeah. are English, we are British, all this stuff. So you're taking influences from, from all around the world. I mean, did that, did, was that immediately apparent when you, you know, when you all plugged in for the first time? Not that you plug drums in, but you know what I mean? Well, yes. Um, but again, uh, we started that first rehearsal off um, and Larry didn't turn up. 
because because we'd chosen two guitarists that we wanted to play with. And therefore, we asked Larry down to, to come and have a blow. And Larry didn't turn up for the first rehearsal. The first rehearsal was me and Lem. But Lem had never heard me play. Right. So so it was it was one of those, oh, there's only two of us, but there's there's, there's plenty to be done here anyway. Oh, yeah. We spent, we played for four and a half straight, four and a half hours straight. Yeah. Straight away through the afternoon. And there was one other guy who I'm speaking to at the moment and getting wonderful information out about, you know, just little details. Like we didn't have a road crew. Therefore, Lem and I slept our equipment from Lem's place and from my place and then all the way up the stairs in the rehearsal studio, the two of us. Yeah. So, so, so you know, I mean, and, and Steve, who, who was there, who, who Doug Smith's office asked, asked him to go down just to check that everything went well. And, and Steve walked up from Battersea Underground Station and, and, and saw me and Lem schlepping all the gear. And he went, oh, fuck, these guys are really committed. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, and we were. And we were. Nothing was going to stop us. This is what we were going to do. And, of course, one of the tipping points was also the famous story where Lemmy suddenly dis- disappeared for a couple of nights and managed to fuck four of the Hawkwind wives while they were still on tour. <laughs> after, that, he, uh, after that, he felt better. Uh, yeah, I've, 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 heard other people, um, I've heard other people allude to, um, uh, to that as well. So, um, so... Well, it happened. Well, it, it happened because I was there. So after those after those first four and a half hours, um, you two you two must have kind of realised that well look we're locked in. There's definitely there's definitely something there. We've just got to get everybody else pull, get their act together. Well, everybody else. Um, Larry insisted that we went and picked him up. So me and Steve, Lemmy didn't want to go because he's so pissed off with Larry for not turning up the first day. <clears throat> he was only down the road in in Walworth Road. Um, and we were in Battersea, you know, I'll <laughs> skip a jump away. Anyway, so, so, so me and Steve went and picked up Larry, and Steve remembered that, that he was terrified because um, um, we went upstairs to Larry's place, and he wasn't ready to go at all. And, um, and Larry had his boa constrictor out on the carpet. Well, that's always nice to, uh, that's always nice to uh, bump into when you're just going to pick a guitarist up in- for a rehearsal. I walk into the living room and there it is like three and a half metres long or four metres long or something. Yeah. Like an enormous animal. And he had, he had a rattlesnake as well and a, and a mad, mad, madly jealous mad parrot called Sally who would attack anybody who got close to Larry. Bloody hell. <laughs> it was great. So, um... Yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> uh, and so, do you, so you eventually got him down to rehearsal? Yeah, so I took him down to rehearsal the next day and, 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 uh, and let me cut out three lines of speed, and we woofed them up and turned the, the volume up to 11, spitting in uh, sort of uh, spinal tap style, and, uh, and off we went. And uh, then we started going through all the numbers that, that became the first set, you know, which is Leaving Here, Lost Johnny, uh, etc. you know, Waiting for the Man, uh, you know, all those tracks. And, uh, and we had something like, I think it was eight, eight or nine rehearsals together, and then we did the ride roundhouse, and then went out on on the road and did eighteen dates. And and I mean, in the scheme of things, the way things are now, I mean, you, that just sounds, it just sounds amazing that after that, you know, short rehearsals, and then, but again, that gives you the sort of that gives you an idea of the of, of that there was a it's still a you know a certain power to Lemmy's name. Oh yeah, well, well it was also <clears throat> it was the do it itself thing of punk. Yeah. 
it was, you know, well, well, nobody's going to do this for us. We're going to just fucking do it. We're not going to wait for anybody else. And we just just hammered down down the line and 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 kept hammering. And uh, and, and and again, the image the image came together uh, around that period as well. We've been gradually working on that. Levy had a leather jacket, but we, but we uh, the bullet belt. But then we started really getting into the um, the whole thing of the mirror shades, the cowboy boots. The uh, uh, I had a leather jacket, so started adorning that with the. Uh, Nazi regalia and stuff again as a way of provoking the British establishment. Yeah. It was just like the Hell, Hell's, Hell's Angels used the skulls, and you know that a lot of the Hell's Angels, just like Jim Morrison, were sons of very, very rich people. Uh, well, it, Jim, Jim, Jim Morrison was the son of an admiral, for God's sake. Well, yeah, um, and how those that, those eighteen dates um, that must have been a kind of real whirlwind. You know, as somebody because they, you know that <laughs> that was a, that was a chance to go out on the road and and really test drive the model. Well, yes, that's right. And and as, as Larry pointed out at one point, uh, we created the mold from which everything else was. You know, that was the, that was the um, the first stone of the edifice. And and it sounded rough and ready, and it was, but it God did it. It, it really had something. You know, I mean, it, it was very loud and. Uh, and, and uncompromising, and of course, <clears throat> the first roundhouse gig was full of pink fairies and Hawking fans. Of course, it was, <clears throat> and they all came down, and they were all dressed in their, their hippie garb. And suddenly, these these three guys came out in leather jackets and, 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 and jeans and cowboy boots, and you know, with, with attitude, a lot of attitude, and 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 then hammered the songs, four or five of which they knew by heart from Pink Fairies and Hawkwind. And, but the songs sounded nothing like they'd ever sounded before. And so we were playing to a whole, whole roundhouse full of open mouths in shock <laughs> at the volume and the arrangements, because we'd arranged them completely differently. Shock, 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 three and a half, four minute numbers. No long solos, you know. Yeah, and that's, to me, that sounds like, um, that sounds like a very much, um, uh, a set list that was as much a set list it was as much a statement as anything else yes yes absolutely very much so very much so it, it, it was an anti-establishment statement you know and, and it is the whole thing of Lemmy had this wonderful gift for the uh, the verb if you like uh, he read all the time he read books all the time then he always had books on the go he was always reading yeah and, uh, and he, he was constantly looking for, for good catchphrases and stuff like that hence if you know we will be the dirtiest, loudest band in the world. Um, if if Motorhead moved in next door to you, the grass would die. And I can remember that that coming about because uh, um, where Lem was living at Motorcycle Irene's place, um, it was a very very hot summer, and 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 we noticed the grass in in, in the neighbour's garden was was completely yellow and died. And that's where the you know if Motorhead moved in next door, your grass would die. That's where mm-hmm. it came from, you know. Yeah. So, 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 uh, so, so all of that, and uh, go to bed with Motorhead, which me and my girlfriend painted on an enormous uh, bomb site because bomb sites were still all over London. You know, so yeah. Yeah. And when when you um, when it came to the end of the tour, and you know you 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 kind of you're, you're back in the rehearsal room. Um, what was no, the... no 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 we went straight to Rockfield. Ah right okay. We went straight in to record on parole. Wow. Right. So it was literally, it was that quick. It was that quick. And then we did 
uh, I can't remember. I think we did Hammersmith Odeon and the Marquee after after Rockfield. Right, two London shows. Yes. Brilliant. So, and and two vastly different ones. You know, one tiny marquee that had been the original marquee. You know, and, and it, the, it was. And Hammersmith Odeon. Well, Hammersmith Odeon was supporting Blue Oyster Cult, who sabotaged our sound. Because we were meant, um, Doug Smith had scored us the, the support slot on, on Blue Oyster Celt's tour. Um, but Blue Oyster Celt didn't like the idea and sabotaged our sound. And as a result, had the excuse not to have an, uh, to boot us off the tour. Right. And was that, do you think that was just basically um, running scared of the, the Motorhead sound and the reaction you were getting? Yes. Yes, and 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 Blue Oyster Cult, like most heavy rock bands at the time, were extremely organised and extreme. There was there was none of this flying by the seat of your pants stuff like we did. It yeah. was it was all very regimental. <laughs> yeah, know? which is great. You know, it's great. You know, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. again. I'm just saying that we're in in 1975. We're six months before punk hit. Yeah. And when, and when punk came in, McLaren and, and Westwood picked up on, I don't know, 80% of our image and went for it. Suddenly the jackets were back in. Suddenly, uh, you know, inverted swastikas are in. Suddenly torn clothes are in. Suddenly mirror shades are in. Uh, cowboys, cowboy boots worn with bondage, tra- bondage trousers, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So it when... Was, it was, it all... St- and I'm not saying it all started with Modi, but in some ways I am. <laughs> the, use of skull, the, the, the use of skulls, right? I had a I had a skull earring um, from way before I met Lemmy, and uh, and when Joe Patagno turned up with the uh, the two sketches, which became Snaggletooth, um, Lemmy disappointed at one and said, "That's it," and then looked at me and, and said, "You see his little skull? I want a skull hanging off his ear. I want one of those hanging off one of the tusks, and also want a, an iron cross off it." And rollerball style, I want spikes across uh, across the uh, the top of the head. Yeah. And and that's, that... how, that's how Snaggletooth came about. Brilliant. So it was literally he just looked at him and went, right, yeah, that's fine, that's okay, but add that, 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 and that, and that's what we still have to this day. And and also, uh, Alien came out a little bit before that, as far as I can remember. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but but there was that 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 that, that saliva dripping from from the scut from, from the snaggletooth's mouth as well. Had to have that. That was an addition. Right, right, yeah. And what was the um? And what was it like going into going into Rockfield and um uh and recording on parole? Um. Well, it was for some reason we suddenly had almost pure amphetamine sulfate speed. <laughs> so so it got very crazy very quick um, I kind of played safe because um, on the tour it was like you know Keith Moon Mitch Mitchell Angie Dunbar all, all of those would be your key references for me of you know flailing around the kit between Larry and Lemmy and, and, and somehow jamming the uh, jamming the, the Zildjian cymbals above Larry and uh, and uh, above Larry's guitar and, and the toms between between uh, Lemmy's growling bass, which sounded something like fifteen Harleys on speed, um, and, and and so it was it was this this melt this, this melting pot of of of, of um, liquid volcanic metal sort of thing that that that, 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 that gelled, 
Yeah. Um, and getting that in the studio, Dave Evans did a great job on the guitars, absolutely phenomenal, and the, and the bass sound and, and the drum sounds. And we spent a long time getting that up. And then we hammered through quite a few songs. Again, he, here we go. You know, um, if you go through all the books, they say about four songs. But you listen to New on Parole, there were a few more songs than just four songs that went down. Yeah. And, um, and when I, I played really safe because the speed was so strong and straight, played straight down the line, more like Charlie Watts or Ringo Starr style, you know. And assuming that I'd be able to overdub, uh, overdub some more drums on it afterwards to get the, the feel that we had live. And that didn't happen because Filthy got brought in. And I was flying out the back door because the speed was so strong. So, so, so that's when Filthy was brought in to, to, to overdub uh, some drums. Um, and did a wonderful job. Fucking amazing. You know, love Phil. Love Phil. Um, and I fully understand how he took over and all that stuff. And, and no, no, um, I have no bones about that. That's fine. You know, um, I was just pleased that we managed to get the thing off the ground. And the fact that I spun out, well, Lemmy'd been doing speed for how many years before that? You know, keeping up with his habit was impossible. And, uh, and he insisted that everybody took speed, you know, so, so there was, was no question of not, not taking speed. Yeah. And I was into, I was into taking speed as well. But, but it, it, like most people, it didn't suit me, particularly in those sorts of quantities. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, and so was so that was that at the heart of um, you know of of how things turned out. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It took me a, it took me a long time to, to to really get myself back into shape again. Um, I went and delivered flowers and all sorts of stuff to, to, to try and pull myself out of speed, and and it was hard work. It's, it's very hard work pulling myself pulling myself around again. Um, and about four or five months later, I started drumming again. And, and then uh, maybe eight months or a year later, it was Warsaw packed, and I tried out for the Pretenders as well um, with Chrissy and Chrissy and Pete Farnden. That was great. Spent spent a few days with them, and they were rowing rowing all the time because Chrissy was going out with Pete, and it, it wasn't working out. But uh, musically, it was amazing, fucking amazing. But what was um, it um, when your when when the eventual sort of parting of the ways with with Motorhead came? Um, how was it done? Was it, you know, was it, it, was it respectful? Was it quick, slow? You know, was it, was it filtered through somebody else? How did it all come to a head? No, it's pretty, it was pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. Um, but, but that's the way it went. And, and, uh, after it happened, then there was a short time when, as I say, I disappeared and, and pulled myself together. And then, uh, every gig that I played in every band after that, suddenly Len would pop up in the, in the audience and we'd go for a drink. You know, so, so 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 it wasn't like we had hard feelings between us. He still loved me, and I loved him. We, we were very close buddies. And um, and again, when we met up for the tenth anniversary, and again when we met up in two thousand and fourteen, last time I saw him, you know, we spent two and a half hours together with this tin the, the bass tech, um, and uh, in, in 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 his dressing room. And every time the dressing room filled up with photo calls and stuff, he'd, he'd throw them all out. And the first time he cleared the dressing room I got up to leave and he said no no you sit down we're not finished <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then we went back into what we were talking about you know this SS unit or or um, this band and you know yeah. talking about our stuff our stuff like we always did it was like going back 45 years you know? and did you um, I mean you were then in a position you know you one minute you're in my head next minute you're not did you 
did it also did that did that give you a kind of uh, a window into how Lemmy must have been feeling when when the whole Hawkwin thing fell apart? Or were oh, of you, course, you know, of course, of, of course, absolutely, because it, it was a direct parallel. Yeah, it was a direct parallel. I, I got kicked out because because of the speed. He got kicked out because of the speed, slightly differently, but but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, but but I didn't feel the same unfairness thing that he did. Right. Um, although, although it's the the biggest band, you know, the the biggest sort of thing that I've been in, um, I didn't feel that that terrible unfairness. So this, you know, this is not righteous and all that stuff. I could see why it happened. Yeah. You know, I was out my brains, but I uh, I could still I could still reason fairly well. <laughs> and and, and, I, and I, you know, my days are numbered, and it so it, it saved my life. I'd have been dead if I'd stayed. Yeah. Yeah. But, but but again, I, I, you know, people are often ask me um, out, out of these issues. One of the other quest, classic questions is, is, well, how would you have thought that if you'd stayed in Motorhead, it would have fitted into the music scene at the time? And I, I sort of went, fucking great, you know. I can perfectly imagine the Dam supporting Motorhead or Generation X supporting Motorhead or, you know, all of them. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. There's a whole, there's a whole punk new wave ethic. The Clash, the Clash and Motorhead on, on the same bill? You're fucking kidding. Well, when, As it was then, and when you and when you had time, you know, you were you were you know you you were in the band, then you weren't, and then you saw the album came. Out. And as the band progressed, um, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to you know the, the, get around your feelings at that time. Was it a feeling of you know of grief having missed out? Were you were you pleased for them, or did that? No, or, please, or, please, 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 please for them, and 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 frankly. Um, the way it kind of turned out, and even on the first tour, um, what Lemmy and I originally had in our brains wasn't quite how it turned out, out either. Right. Um, we had something more melodic and tuneful, although just as hard-hitting in mind as a long-term goal. Um, and the way it turned out was, was a bit... I think he, he, he kind of cornered himself into a straitjacket because the fans loved so much that rough and ready um, thing that when it got honed into this this fighting machine that it became, musically fighting machine, um, <clears throat> in a way it was kind of locked into something. And, and Lemmy, well, that's why he, he, he started his, his own second band to do rockabilly numbers and stuff. Yeah. Because he, he was also frustrated and also... Um, on various tracks, you can hear him singing as, as opposed to hurling. And of course, hurling his vocal came from a mixture of his love of John Lennon, which he had in his gruff, Liverpudlian style vocal anyway, but also the thing, the volume. So you, you mustn't forget that, that at that time, um, all the sound engineers, like the sound engineers in the studios, the live sound engineers, had honed on how to do perfect fallback so you could hear a pin drop when it was really loud. But Motorhead didn't, didn't, didn't fit into that at all. And doing the monitors and stuff was horrendous. Really complicated job because it's so loud out front, so loud on stage, that actually working out a way of getting the vocals through the monitors so you could hear them properly, so you could sing rather than, rather than ball, um, was, was not there yet. Therefore, Lemmy basically broke his voice and started hurling, you know, like really haranguing the, the crowd. And that became the Lemmy that everyone loved. And therefore, in a way, he got trapped into that. 
Right. Right. And although he lo- although he loved doing, it. I'm not saying I'm not saying it was against what he wanted. It's just in in a way musically, he put himself in a straitjacket. Yeah, yeah. But ultimately, m- m- that... m- m- much as we all love Motorhead, nonetheless, could you imagine a Motorhead mixed with Led Zeppelin? Yeah, and uh, not quite. A, no. Imagine, <laughs> but, well, we just imagine. But, but I'm talking about melodically. Yeah, if it, 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 you know, I mean, uh, Lemmy and I love Kashmir, for instance. Fucking amazing track, you know, and, and, and those sorts of tracks, that sort of in, enormous, almost gothic rock style. <clears throat> um, you know, this is a mercy. Andrew Eldritch loved Motorhead. Well, it, it, I mean, the thing is, Motorhead have have ended up with uh, ended up with such <clears throat> a unique sound and such a unique legacy and and, and history that. You know, I, I I doubt anybody would change a thing about it. Um, um, but it's interesting to hear that, and is is often the case is that you know an artist's vision for something doesn't always, you know, end up being what's created. Well, yeah, I, I mean, if you go back to to, to Lem and and the um, and, and the documentary which you must have seen. And uh, the scene yeah. where he's in in the record shopping at LA buying his Beatles, um, you know, full Beatles uh, early tracks, etc., in mono. Yeah. And think about it. He wanted double vocals as well, if not triple vocals and harmonies. You see, balled out early Beatles star. So, so, so there was quite a lot of stuff that there was part of his. Um, his whole raison d'etre, if you like, his, his whole was w- within his blood, which didn't make it into being being in Motorhead. Which I'm not, I'm not like you just said, you know, it's such a unique legacy. I'm not going, oh, I wish it could have been. All I'm saying is that that's what Lemmy and I thought it would be, quite naturally, because of Lemmy's obsession as a minor, my obsession. Yeah, and that last, you know, and, and that, that last that, time, that that, that 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 would have been a logical thing to have as part of the you know it would have been like probably double guitars um two or three vo- vocals you know yeah and and very heavy but but with quite a lot more melody in it not all the time but occasional ones which would really just like tear your head off as being incredibly you know you mentioned the beatles vocals on a on, on a motorhead song you know it would be fucking amazing yeah yeah and that you know, you know what i mean that, that, it, 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 that, that that's what i'm really getting at that that, that, I'm not saying I wish that, but that was kind of what the natural uh, extension of what was going in our bra- on in our brains at the time. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. And, when we started it. and that 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 last time that you met um, must have been. I, I mean, that that must have been um, quite an occasion. Uh, did you get any sense at the time that maybe this would be the last time you saw him? Uh, absolutely. I was absolutely certain. I mean, when I, when we got we got thrown out of the Zenith in Paris in the end because there was nobody else there but me, Lem, and, and Tim. <laughs> and people from the Zenith came in, came in and came in the dressing room and said, listen, you're going to have to go. We've got to close the place. You know, you're the only people left. And so I escorted him out to the park, car park. Tim got on the bus and Lemmy and, Lem and I had a chat in the car park. And then um, the electric door opened for the bus and he painfully climbed up the stairs and as the bus door closed I realised then I knew it was the last time I'd see him 
Right. And was it all, did you get that from, was that all from the walk? Uh, when we were doing the photo call with the damned, um, he, on all the photo calls, he put me slap bang next to him in the centre of every photo and put his arm around my shoulders. Therefore, the natural thing is you put your arm around his waist. And there, I, there was nothing but bone there. Right. There's no flesh. There's no flesh. Yeah. There's nothing left. There's nothing left. Yeah. And that must so have been, was, that must it, have been it, quite it, tough. It was very tough because Lemmy had a, such a weird metabolism. When he didn't have speed, he didn't flake because he had water retention. So none, none of his clothes would fit and stuff. And so to see this man who was, he was never really overweight, but he was always quite solidly built. Yeah. To see him into a sort of, you know, skeletal form was was really eerie and strange. And, you know, you can see, that, see in the photos of his face and stuff. It must have been it must have been difficult as well walking away from that because part of you wants part of you has enjoyed spending time with a great friend and you've had a lovely night and part of you is realizing you're probably never going to get to do that again that must have been a real conflict it was a mixture of things because it was such a relief um, one of my friends summed it up he said you're so lucky to have been able to revisit the old you too the old two, the, the two of you. Yeah. And, and, and I was so grateful to have had that chance for us to get back to where we were. That was cathartic. Yeah. So that, that, that overrode the, well, I mean, it tore my heart out to see him walk up the steps. Yeah. And it tore my heart out because I, I loved him so much. He was, he was, you know, a really close mate. We were, you know, I was there for him in his time of need. It's one of the things that, that the guy who ran the dressing rooms, when I arrived in the dressing rooms, he said, oh, Lucas, American guy, oh, Lucas, it's a real honor to have you here. Everybody knows you're here. Let me know you're here. You're going to have to wait a little, a little bit to still see him, but you'll be able to see him for a while. There's no problem. And by the way, you know, the, the, the chef's over there. He knows they cook, he can cook anything in the world that you want if you're hungry. You know, just ask for any dish you'd like. He's a really good chef. And the bar's open if you want anybody to bring, bring beers or, or bottles of Jack or whatever you want, yeah. it's all there. So you're um, being well looked, looked after. after me. Oh yeah, like like a prince, and I was very surprised. And then he turned on his he turned and walked away and stopped and walked back. And he said, "You do realise that there'll be nobody in this dressing room. There'll be nobody in this senate. There would be no Modeed if you hadn't been there for him in 1975. Wow. Everybody here knows it, and it never crossed my mind. Yeah." Because I've always moved, I've always moved forward in my life. Same here, mate. Only, yeah, I know exactly I mean, what you mean. I've never looked back. Yeah. And it's only now that I've been asked to write the book and I've got to publish and all the rest of it. I'm now plunging back into all of this, and it's fascinating because because suddenly it's all very fresh, and I haven't I haven't really revisited it since then. So it's all coming coming up like holograms in my living room. It's really quite creepy. Well, it's, I, it's very interesting. Well, look, I completely agree. It is fascinating. And look, on behalf of everybody listening, I've just got to thank you for spending the time today and 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 going, you know, and being so open and so honest. Honestly, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I know everybody's going to have a, a you know a, a great time listening to this. And um, look, just thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. 
Well, if I can just say something to all the people out there. A, thank you, Howard. It's been a pleasure for me, too. And two, all of you out there, reach out to each other. We're, we're going through tough times at the moment. You know, we've been through a lot of shit, you know. So, 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 so please, all of you out there, reach out to each other. Support each other. If people are alone, go and, you know, go and dig them out. If, if, you're, if you're confined to quarters, well, do virtual cocktails and virtual parties. <laughs> yeah. But, but don't forget to party. We've got to party through this. <laughs> as best we can. Um, look, as, Lucas, well, thank as, you as very much. We will. I really My appreciate pleasure, it. Howard. Thanks My a lot. Pleasure, man. Take, take care of yourself. You bye. too. Cheers. Bye bye. Do you know what? I really enjoyed listening back to that again. Um, it's been quite a while since I did that, and I'm really, really glad that I listened to that again. Um, I, I'm praising myself here. I mean, what a lovely guy. What a lovely guy. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed doing it. That is the legend that is the the mystery wrapped in enigma <laughs> that is Lucas Fox. Remember where you heard that interview first. And even better, why don't you share it? Why don't you share the Motorcast with anyone and everyone you know? They don't have to be into Motorhead. They don't even have to be into, well, podcasts. Just But just point them in the direction of the Motorcast. And if people that you know already like podcasts, tell them. Tell them to listen to the Motorcast. And even better... If you can subscribe, please do. That involves clicking the subscribe button. Wherever you're listening to this, there will be a subscribe button somewhere. Tap that and you will get a new episode of the Motorcast every two weeks, 14 days, fortnight, whatever language you want to use. It's going to come to you. All you need to do is subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe while you're there. And just keep supporting us like you are doing. I really appreciate every single one of you. Everybody in the Motorcast team does. Everybody in the Motorhead management team does. Everybody connected with Motorhead behind the scenes is really blown away by how supportive you all are. And it means the world to all of us. So thank you for listening. I hope you'd enjoyed it. And I'll catch you next time on the next episode of the Motorcast. I don't show you greed. The only God I need is the Ace of Spades. The Ace of Spades.